Please be seated. <coughs> if you have a Bible, you can open to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Um, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. So um, there's a momentum in this world, uh, in our world, toward disunity and inertia or a momentum. Um, undercurrent toward disunity or toward separation in relationships. Uh, we, we distinguish ourselves from others uh, and we highlight what's distinctive about ourselves so that we can do that, so we can feel superior to others, right? Hold ourselves at a distance from each other. We prefer to enjoy a lot of times our, our comforts uh, in, in solitude, right? Or maybe with a select qualifying few, you don't imagine going on vacation with everybody in the church. You just want to go by yourself, maybe a little getaway with uh, your, your closest friends or family. But uh, holding most people, most relationships at a distance so that we can really actually have a, a good, relaxing, refreshing, comfortable time, right? Solitude. Uh, we think that uh, when we experience discomfort uh, in relationships, that the remedy for that is withdrawal, right? Things will be easier if we just create distance between ourselves and the people with whom uh, we're in conflict. For example, uh, those of you with children, uh, with more than one child, um, what is your instinct when those kids are fighting? Separate them, right? Get them in different rooms, different corners of the room, whatever, time out, silence, just make the noise uh, stop and the friction and the conflict, just make it stop right? by getting them out of contact with each other. <laughs> That's normal, right? We do that all the time. Or what about when someone does something that's hurtful to you? Right? At some point, the pain is too great, and you know what? That relationship can end. It could end. That, that person, that relationship, that person's role in your life is uh, expendable. Right? Ultimately, if it doesn't suit me, doesn't feel good anymore to be in a relationship with that person, it's, that, that relationship is expendable. Uh, you actually see this kind of thing on Facebook quite a lot. People saying things like, I'm just done with disloyal backstabbers. I'm so done with uh, critics. I'm done with people who don't treat me like the center of the universe. <laughs> right? I'm just done with them. They'll say that out loud. And the, the apparently loyal friends then respond with comments like, you go. You know, um, That's right, you don't need them. Just cut them out of your life. Unfriend. <laughs> if we let that undercurrent carry us, which is an undercurrent, it's a momentum that we experience in, in all the world, in all of our relationships, if we just let it take us where it's going, then um, at the end of the day, we'll each find ourselves alone in our rooms, bitter or depressed or both, most likely. Um, God intends the church to be a place where that momentum is countered, where it's resisted. And that's not to say that this is a place that's free of conflict. But it's a place where we're supposed to be able to experience unity that perseveres in spite of conflict. It perseveres through any, that it can handle any kind of conflict. Ed Welch says, um, we just finished reading up 
uh, finished up reading his book side by side, which is really good. And if you if you haven't read that, you should you should read it. I think that'll be the testimony of everybody in that group. So, um, Ed Welch says that unity is a dominant theme in the New Testament, and we should expect the bulk of our Christian relationships to head in that direction. Um, But unfortunately, division still characterizes us, even in the church, globally. You think of how many denominations are there, can't even count them. Uh, Nobody really knows um, how, how fractured the church really is on a global scale, and locally, right? We've probably had more people leave this church on bad terms in, in the, the short life of a church that we have, six years, probably had more people leave this church on bad terms than we have sitting here right now. Um, it's no surprise to us when that happens, right? It's no surprise to us that ultimately self-centered people would repel each other. Um, the surprising thing is when we actually stay together, right? It's almost with disbelief. You know this is, is true. It's almost disbelief that you celebrate people's uh, 20th anniversary, 30th, 40th, 50th anniversary, almost with disbelief. And, uh, and we ask those people what their secrets are for staying together because we know what the momentum is. It's, it's toward separation, toward disunity and division, and uh, Paul's been telling us the secret here in his letter to the Ephesians, the secret to true unity, everlasting unity, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's it. Right? Um, God has already graciously done the work of really uniting us, really bringing us together in Christ through the sacrifice of his son and, and through the love of the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And now, as Paul's been talking about this, He's transitioning at this point in, uh, in the letter that we're going to read here um, shortly. Uh, transitioning to tell us how we can live in accordance with that gospel. How we can live in accordance in light of the good news of the unity that he has already provided and freely given to us as a gift of his grace. So that that spiritual unity that we already have would be kept and it would be made tangible and visible. Um, God has given us everything we need to fight the momentum of this world, to maintain our unity, rather than letting conflict drive us to divisions. And that's what we'll talk about this morning. So let me pray, then we'll read the passage. Father, it's hard for us to be honest with ourselves about the trajectory of most of our relationships uh, because of our self-centeredness. Left to ourselves, we would uh, only be heading along with the rest of the world toward uh, disintegration of all relationships. And um, so we need your help if we're even going to be honest about that. And we definitely need your help if we're going to find a solution to that. We need to know your grace. And so we pray that you would convince us of your grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ as we consider your word this morning. Help us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord 
one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I was reading this week a little book um, that uh, you've probably never heard of, and uh, it's, it's strange, it's not very old, but it's kind of out of print. You can get like a used copy on Amazon or something, but uh, it's called In One Body Through the Cross. In One Body Through the Cross, and it's a, it's a proposal by several theologians from different traditions, uh, different theological traditions, um, that uh, they got together over the course of several years at Princeton and came up with this proposal for Christian unity, right? Unity is a big deal in the New Testament. Um, it's God is a God of unity. And if we're going to be his people, that, that means that unity ought to characterize us. And so, uh, but it doesn't, and especially on a, a denominational level is the way that they're writing this book. Um, <clears throat> it's really worth getting. It's very, it's very uh, short and easy to read. and It's very engaging. But in this book... Uh, they give like a paragraph summary of the book of Ephesians because that's what Ephesians is about. It's about our unity that we have in Christ. And so um, I'm going to read the the summary that they give of the book because I think it's very helpful for us at this point in our study of Ephesians. It says, The epistle to the Ephesians presents the whole Christian mystery as the mystery of God's unification of all things in Christ which takes form most concretely in the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile in one body through the cross. This reconciliation, which already has taken place in the person of the crucified and risen Jesus, demands that we live in a way conformed to this reconciliation. Christian mission is the building up of a new community in which those who were divided are now reconciled as a temple in which God may dwell on the earth. This is the important part of this summary for us this morning. Ephesians thus sketches an amazing cosmic vision in which the very meaning and destiny of creation are displayed in the life of small Christian assemblies in which Jew and Gentile struggle to live together with Christ as their peace. So, our passage this morning, which we read, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, is central in Ephesians, actually centrally located. Uh, You add up all the verses on either side of it, it's right in the middle. And um, uh, it's a transitional passage in, in Ephesians. Paul has previously been exploring kind of the wonders of the gospel, the wonders of who God is and what he's done Uh, in the world and in history and in the sacrifice of his son and in this creation of the church, right? Bringing these natural enemies together in in the church, giving giving them real unity. That's what Paul has been talking about, and now he begins the application of that truth, the application of the gospel to our relationships, particularly in the church, right? Um, So this is the the time in the letter to the Ephesians where the indicatives are shifting to the imperatives, right? The, The language like, God did this is shifting to language like, therefore, you should do this. Uh, Your life in response to the gospel is now um, more and more in view in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the descriptive part of the Christian faith to the prescriptive part. And this passage is transitional there. Um, So so Paul's saying basically um, in our passage, because this is true of you in the gospel, 
Let it be manifest in your relationships. Because you have the unity of the Spirit, that's something that you have, don't let division and separation characterize your life together. Maintain what you already have. God has given it to you as a free gift. Here's how you exercise that in your relationships. The rest of the the letter is about that uh, on a more uh, increasingly practical uh, level. So it may seem like no big deal, right? Like the, the... the book, those theologians from Princeton, uh, or who got together at Princeton, they, they say that small Christian assemblies in which natural enemies struggle to live together with Christ as their peace, small Christian, just like this, right? People who are not normally friends, um, apart from Christ, no big deal, except that it's the very meaning and destiny of creation, Groups like this getting together in Christ, with Christ as our peace, struggling to, to let Christ be our peace. Uh, Paul says this stuff is very important. He says at the beginning of our passage, I'm in jail for this stuff, right? He's suffering imprisonment for the sake of the gospel that he's been proclaiming for these people that he loves that are different from him. He's a Jew and there are Gentiles, right? Um, and this gospel of, of reconciliation, of, of heavenly cosmic reconciliation, he's in jail for it. And he says, I urge you, take it seriously. Right? Um, when we're talking about Christian unity, we're talking about something so far beyond just sentimentalism. This, this feeling of, you know, niceness. Um, this, uh, can't we all just get along? Kind of a laid back, relaxed Uh, relational environment. It's so much more than that. Uh, No, we can't all just get along. Not if you're paying attention to the way things really are, right? It's the most obvious thing in the world. And we might be trying to hide it from ourselves and deny it about ourselves, but it's the most obvious thing in the world. We cannot get along. There's so many people killing each other. We cannot get along. We're committed to ourselves in a way that results in disunity. That's just the way this world is. Um, But the gospel, it changes everything. It undermines all the old allegiances. It removes yourself from the center of your life. And all the things that you um, used in your life to exalt yourself, all those old allegiances, all those false gods, all those things that you would have used to distinguish yourselves from other people uh, and repel each other because we're all self-centered and we're all doing it. All the things we've built our lives on in order to consider ourselves better than others. The gospel turns all that stuff upside down and just just undercuts it all. Um, The gospel shatters the old way of life and makes something entirely new. And Paul is urging us to live accordingly, which is no small thing. This is a big deal. Um, He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, it's easy for us to hear that at least in English, and, um, and think that he's saying, you know, you need to prove yourselves worthy. This has been done for you, now you need to earn it. You need to pay it back. Right? It's like, um, what's that movie, uh, Saving Private Ryan? Where if you haven't seen it, sorry, this is a spoiler or whatever, but uh, there's, this, uh, there's this group of soldiers who are sent, sent way deep into enemy lines to, to retrieve this one son 
of, uh, I think, three, three sons, and the other two sons have already died in battle, and the, the army wants to preserve this one's life and get him back to his mom alive. And all these other people lose their lives in the process of rescuing this guy, saving Private Ryan, getting him back. And uh, just as he's about to be delivered and, and one of the last guys is about to breathe his last, the guy says to him, now earn this. Right? This has been done for you at great, great cost to all of us. Now earn it. That is not what Paul is saying. That's not the way that God is with us. He's not saying, uh, I've given you this great salvation. Now you live in a way that prove, proves yourselves to be worthy of it uh, and earn it. Earn it from me. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying uh, just simply walk in a way that's commensurate with this salvation that I've given you. Salvation has taken you out of the old and brought you into the new. Now live like that's true. Like Live like you're a new creation, which you are. Live like you have unity, which you do. Live like you've been reconciled to God, which you have. Um, walk in a way that's commensurate with your new spiritual reality. <clears throat> you've been called to true unity. It's been granted to you as a free gift. Uh, it's not something you need to achieve. It's not something you need to establish, right? He says maintain the unity of the Spirit, not work hard so that you can get something you don't have. It's, it's already been given to you, free of charge, right? You were heading in the opposite direction, and it's been given to you as a gift of his grace by the gospel at great cost to himself. But the reality of what's been given to you, it should be on display in your life. Right? The reality of what uh, God has done for you by his grace should be on deliberate display. It should be evident in your life. You, you should be living in a way commensurate with it. Right? So, again, in One Body Through the Cross, they say in that little book, um, the, the bond that joins Christians to God and to each other, though it's grounded in the interior working of the Holy Spirit, is not meant to be invisible. It must have a visible edge. So you have this. This is a new spiritual reality for you. It's the work of the Spirit. It's something that you really have to believe because you don't see it in each other's lives very well, that the Spirit really has knit us together with God and with each other. You don't see that. You have to believe it. But that invisible thing, we're supposed to make it visible. That's what he's saying. We're supposed to take that invisible truth and make it uh, and give it a visible edge. You're meant to be an agent of gospel unity, of reconciliation, the, the unity of the Holy Spirit. You're meant to be an agent of the unity of the Holy Spirit, which goes against the natural tendency that we have toward disunity. Right? The natural tendency is, is not to be humble. Uh, as he says, in, uh, in verses 2 and 3, we're supposed to do this with, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Those things are not natural for us. Right? Humility, no. Uh, gentleness, no. Um, patience, no. Bearing with one another in love, no. Those things are not natural for us. When do you need to exercise those traits? Traits like humility and gentleness and patience? And Patience and bearing, forbearance in love. When do you need to exercise those? When do you need to maintain the unity? It's when unity is threatened. Conflict is, is happening when, when relationships are straining. And this is not natural for us to remain humble when we're in conflict, to remain patient, and to continue to love and never stop. That's not natural for us. Um, but these things, humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance and love, these things push back against the momentum toward division. 
the trajectory that the world is on and that we are on apart from the gospel, apart from Christ and his spirit, we're on that trajectory, these things push back. And in the gospel, we have the resources that we need for maintaining our unity when it is threatened, when it's on the verge of collapse. So Paul lists uh, seven facets of the gospel, kind of these these gospel um, realities that are true of us, facets of our oneness, our unity, that should hold us together. These are the things that are true of us. They might, might be invisible to us. They're matters for faith, but they are true. And we have this guaranteed to us in the life and death and resurrection of our, our Lord Jesus Christ. These things are true of us. They're new spiritual realities. And, and from this, you have the resources to maintain your union together. Um, and uh, so he talks about these things. And each one of them really is worth dwelling on for quite a bit longer than I'm going to do. This is just going to be a brief run through. Um, uh, but you should go home and think about these things. He says there's one body. There's one body. So we've got people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every kind of ethnic and religious background, people of different sexes, all united in one body. It's a new community that has been created by the gospel, and that means we have organic unity. It's, It's not just a, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the the analogy is like. It's not just like a bunch of puzzle pieces that have been fit together and, hey, look, look at that. That's a great picture. There's unity there. It's a a living, breathing, it's a being, it's a corporate body uh, imagery that's being presented here. There's one body. We're one living unit. We're so integrated into each other's lives in the church. That that happens by the gospel, right? It's a a brand new community and we have organic unity by God's grace. Uh, there's one spirit. Right? So we have God dwelling inside of us, not just individually, but corporately. And, and he's God the Holy Spirit, which in Trinitarian theology means he's the love of God himself. He's the one who unites the Father and the Son. Um, and we have the one who's the uniter of divine persons, and he's the one who unites us. He unites us to God even as the Son is united to the Father. We have that kind of unity because we have the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit of love. So we have a new life and a new love that lives in us because we've got the Holy Spirit, right? Um, the one Spirit that we share. There's one hope to which we've been called, right? That's kind of a future language. Again, uh, we've talked about this several times. Hope isn't the kind of thing where you're kind of wringing your hands desperately that something might come true if all the circumstances align, um, that maybe, maybe we hope something good will happen for us in the future. But hope is something that's secure for us. It's guaranteed for us. And Paul's been telling us the thing that's out there in front of us, in front of all of us in Christ, is cosmic restoration, cosmic level reconciliation and union, reunion, right? All things will be one day inevitably reconciled, brought together in Jesus Christ. Right? That's our hope. It's not some flimsy thing. It's secure. It's it's bought on. Uh, it's a it's a promise that's bought by the blood of Christ Himself through His own sacrifice for us. So we have a new purpose. We have a new destiny out there in front of us, and it's complete, total, absolute reconciliation that we experience fully between us and God and each other. Uh, That's a good hope that we share, 
We have one Lord. One Lord. That means we have a new authority in our lives, right? It doesn't just say one Jesus or one Son. It calls him Lord. Right? He is the new authority. He's the one in our lives to whom we owe allegiance. And what is he like? He's, he's the one who has all power because he was able to give his life for the sake of love. And that's his definition of power. That's his definition of lordship. He has, he has lordship and authority over life and death, ultimately over the ability to, to give himself for the sake of love. So he's a crucified lord. And he's a risen lord who will live forever in his, in his uh, kingship over life and death. Uh, he's the Lord of love, and he lives inside of us. We share him. We owe all of our allegiance to him together, and we want our lives to be patterned after him, which means love should characterize us because, um, because he's the Lord of love. Right? <clears throat> we have one faith, Paul says. That means we share a new way of thinking. It's an utterly new way of thinking. It's a faith that is characterized by, uh, by who God is, who he's revealed himself to be, which we would not know unless it were for his revelation, his explicitly making known to us what he is like and his work on our behalf, all of which points us to this idea of, of love being the center of the universe because God is a God of love. He's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we believe, like we, we say when we um, uh, recite the Apostles' Creed together, we believe in the Father, we believe in His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and everything that we're talking about in our confession of faith is about the, the union that we have through faith in Christ. It's a totally new way of approaching life and thinking about God and thinking about the way that we interact with people in all of our relationships in this world. This world is on one careening trajectory uh, toward disintegration. And here we have, because we have God's word, we have a new plan laid out for us, something new to believe, something new to give ourselves to, a new way of thinking about everything, a new, new set of values where love and unity are supreme because of um, who God is and what he's done for us in the gospel. We have one faith, and we have one baptism, right? One baptism, and uh, as everybody knows very clearly, it's, uh, you know, baptism is makes total sense to everybody. It's one of these mysteries of the faith. I'm kind of being, uh, I'm joking. It's, it's hard to figure out what baptism is about um, in the scriptures, uh, who it applies to, what the point of it is. But one of the things that you see repeatedly is that uh, it's, it's a naming process, right? A baptism gives you a new identity because you have a new name placed on you. You are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one God whose being is love. You're baptized in his name. That means you've, you've been given a new identity, just like you've been given a new name, right? Uh, you've been brought out of the old and into the new, and what that means is now his identity is actually by, by a gift of his grace. It's yours, right? Love is yours. A new, you have a new reality because you've been renamed and re-identified as a child of this God, not some other God, this God. So we share together because there's one baptism, we've all been baptized into the one true uh, triune God. We share a new identity, a new family name, and so we can recognize each other as members of the family. Right? Um, a family that's going to last forever. Right? You've been introduced into this family, into the church, through your baptism. And, um, and that should give us good reason to uh, view each other as brothers and sisters who deserve our love. 
And then there's one God and Father of all, and he kind of sums it up with that. He says this is the, the ultimate reality. We have a new ultimate reality that we share, and it's God as a personal Father to each of us, to all of us together. Right? That's the, that's the, uh, the main banner over our lives in the church is that God is our Father. Jesus teaches us to pray to God as our Father, not some other way, but as our Father primarily. He's teaching us that we're brought into a relationship with the ultimate one in the universe, and that relationship is to be characterized by familial love. He is our Father. He's a good Father to us, and we share Him. He's God and Father of all of us. And so there's seven facets here, which probably is deliberate. There's probably more aspects of our unity that we could uh, point to. Um, but uh, he mentions these seven, kind of seven is always a symbolic number, right? Uh, you have everything you need. This is perfect. This is complete. You have everything you need. You have enough to inspire you because of the gospel. You have enough to inspire you to live in unity together, even when that unity is threatened, even when it's difficult to love each other and, and sticking together is very hard and even impossible to imagine, humanly speaking. Right? You have the resources that you need in the gospel. Because let's be honest, the impulse to leave, uh, whether you're talking about the church or family relationships or friendships or whatever, the impulse to leave or to drive others away when things are very difficult, that impulse just seems very easy. Right? It feels like if I were just to let those relationships drift apart or walk away from that or push somebody away, it would be as easy as just falling down and letting gravity do its work. Right? That's the momentum. That's the inertia. When there's conflict and when it's really bad, way in the back of our minds, sometimes it pushes its way to the front, but usually in the back of all of our minds, there's this thought, maybe they'll just go away and find another church. Um, maybe she'll say, enough's enough, I've had it, get out, I want, I want a divorce. Maybe, maybe divorce and maybe separation will be easier than the hard work of staying together. Maybe it'll be easier, right? Maybe it would be easier, at least in the short run. Right? Maybe it would be easier, but for what? Easier for what, ultimately? When people walk away from each other, what does that make it easier to do? What is that easier for? Our lives are to be characterized by reconciliatory love. Our lives are to be characterized by love that overcome conflicts and divisions. Is it really easier to love someone when they're out of your life for good? When they've walked away from that relationship or you've pushed them away or you've walked away? Does that make it easier to love? Selfishness gets easier when we end relationships. Selfishness gets easier, not love. Again, in One Body Through the Cross, they say um, agape, which is Christian love, it's a self-sacrificial love, a love that might meet with a lot of resistance or even rejection, but that continues to devote itself to the good of the other, to the good of the relationship, Right? This love that pursues agape, Christian love, as it's defined in the scriptures. They say agape regards even wrong done by the other as an occasion for communion. 
All you have to do to think of that is think what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed. He was staring down the people who were going to walk away from him, who were going to abandon him, who were going to reject him and betray him. And he offered them to eat a meal with him. He viewed even their, their wrong done as an occasion for communion. And that's the way Jesus is with all of us. There's no other kind of person in this world than the kind of people who walk away from God, who walk away from Jesus, and he pursues us, and he sets a table for us, and he invites us to sit down. Even the wrong that we've done is an occasion for communion with God, and so our love regards even wrong done by the other as an occasion for communion. Painful conflict. We're not minimizing the fact that it's painful, and it's hard, and we want to walk away from it. Painful conflict is an opportunity for redemption. It's an opportunity for reconciliation. It's an opportunity for love, real love, because real love suffers. You look at Jesus, that's what real love is. And you will only think that way. You'll only think that conflict really is an opportunity for that kind of communion. Uh, You'll only think that way when you've made basically a real basic, bare, bare bones commitment to follow the Spirit, who is the unity of God himself. To follow the Spirit and maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To just basically commit, just decide you're not going to stop being together. You're not going to stop loving. I'm not going to stop. No matter what you decide, I'm not going to stop. I don't know what that's going to look like. It's going to be hard. It's going to require a lot out of me. I'm not going to stop. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the church probably means just at the very least, keep coming to church on Sundays, <laughs> right? Uh, don't forsake, don't neglect getting together with other Christians, as the Scripture says. At the very least, continuing to meet together and not just leaving, not just leaving a congregation for whatever reason, for just any old reason, right? Maintaining the unity of the Spirit, bottom line, He's got to mean that. Don't walk away from your brothers and your sisters. Um, Mature Christians will interweave their lives together with the lives of others in the congregation and in such a way that uh, they will not withdraw. They won't stop. It's as basic as that. Not that you know how relationships will uh, experience this real redemption and reconciliation and reunion. Not that you know, like when you say that basic commitment, I'm not going to stop loving you, things are really hard, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do tomorrow with you because I don't like this relationship the way that it is. We're in conflict. I don't know. I can't tell what it's going to look like for all of this to be fixed, right? Um, But I'm committed to it, regardless of what that commitment means regardless of what that will require for me, and regardless of your commitment to me. It would be best, this is what uh, is, is good for maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the church, it's best if it's mutual, right? Like in a marriage, two people committing to each other in our church, all of us committing, right? But uh, regardless of whether you do or not, I've got to. I've got to make that basic commitment to follow the Spirit for myself. Um, and that means really bearing with one another in love. Because all these things that Paul's talking about, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, those are all things that are usually hard for us to do. 
and um, uh, they seem intolerably hard. But we have the resources we need. And we, so we need to work on our unity in all our relationships at every level, like in our congregation, in our presbytery, with other churches in the region that are uh, the PCA churches in our denomination. But um, beyond that, ultimately, with all other gospel churches, we need to work toward real reconciliation and to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Because we have brothers and sisters out there in those other churches that maybe you say you'd never set foot in those doors, Right? Um, but you have unity with them in the spirit, so we need to work on things like that. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like. Um, shaking their hands is a good place to start. Praying for them, praying for each other, asking for their prayers. The Christians you know who are in other churches, um, there's little steps we can do. Read that book, um, In One Body Through the Cross, for some ideas there, but it's a daunting work. It's probably going to require some serious sacrifice in ways that just are surprising to us, the ways that we haven't considered yet to maintain the unity of the Spirit. But we've got the resources to begin restoring and maintaining unity, and we're called to do it. God himself calls us to do it, to live in line with the gospel, to, to live in a way that's commensurate with this spiritual reality for us. We're called to do it, so let's do it. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray for your help. This uh, vision of unity rather than disunity, it is compelling for us. We look at who you are and the, the eternal union of the, the triune God, and we say that really is good and beautiful and true, and we want to participate in your life, and we want to let your life um, be more deeply and thoroughly integrated in our lives and in our relationships we want that, and we don't know how to implement that. We don't know what it means to follow you. We don't, don't know what the kind of sacrifice it will require from us. We pray that you would um, give us the full assurance of faith that, that when we follow you, even if it's painful, it's good. And to love like Christ, uh, the suffering lover who laid down his life, even for his enemies, that, that is good. That's where we want to be. We pray for your Spirit's help. Uh, for our congregation and in all of our relationships. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.